Here are the top 10 podcasts for Australian accountants. You're listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 213 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Of course, you know that no podcast has the answer. Every podcast is different, has a different angle, gives you a different insight. They are all just pieces in a puzzle. There is not just one answer. To inspire you, we have created this list of the top 10 podcasts for Australian accountants and tax professionals and advisors, of course. The list isn't rated. Any of the following podcasts is really good. And this list is just what we think. It's not based on a survey or public voting. But maybe we can do that next year. Maybe with our fellow podcasters in Australia. As you know from experience, no podcast is brilliant in every episode. And also not every podcast is right for every time of the day. Some podcasts are great when you are in work mode, on the way to see a client, and others are better when you are relaxed heading home. And so without further ado, here is Text Talk's top 10 podcasts for Australian accountants. Podcast number one. From the trenches. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to From the Trenches, real life in the accounting industry. My name is David Boyer from SQL CFO. Joined with me is Paul Meisner from Freedom Mentoring. They have charisma, are open, funny, fast, articulate and regularly disagree with each other. I swim differently than if there's somebody in the lane next to me going at a similar pace to me. Yeah, that, but these um, these pace setters, it was like yes, a- Yes, I just compared my athletic capabilities to a bloke who just ran marathon distance in under two normally, anyway, I won't say what I was going to say. Leave it, Paul. There is best on ground. My best on ground, Dave. From the trenches. I love We love robots. We do love robots on this show. And then there's worst on ground. Uh, David, give us your worst on ground. Dun, da, da, dun. From the trenches. Let's spend a bit of time on this. And then alternating with best on ground and worst on grounds, there are episodes where David and Paul go deeper into one topic. They're up to date on new ventures, new apps, new startups, who's doing what. But the best thing about them is they have no fear. They don't pretend, they just say as they see it. Let's take their visit to Account Tech in Melbourne last month as an example. We are coming to you from AccountTech.live, a accounting event down in Melbourne that will feature later on in the show, Paul. Middle note. How'd you describe the foot traffic going past? Uh, it's a little bit thin, I think. It's a little bit thin, unfortunately, <laughs> David. Sam Rotberg and the accounts hit kick guys. Uh, look, I think it's it, we, we've seen this change. Um, free tickets, we know, from trying to get people to attend. It is very hard to get uh, get people here. Who knows what the numbers will come out, but I think just looking at it, it has certainly seemed uh, very thin on the ground, David. We've been sitting here for 30 minutes now. 
How many people have come up to the BGL stand? It, it is. I can literally swing it's a cat. Empty. I do not. I cannot see. I can't see a single punter. I'm struggling to see someone who's not affiliated to a sponsor. Maybe three over there. This this is disappointing, David. I, I, and I'm going to call it. The I think- receipt bank staff are sitting on the couches. I think this is the easiest day of work they've ever had. I'm just explaining. Nobody's got anyone. Uh, pay rec, my bills doesn't have anyone at the stand. Account kit doesn't have anyone. CPA does. Oh, no, but they're the event organisers. Uh, Castaway doesn't. And uh, it doesn't look like there's anything on in the cinema, in the theatres either. This no. is a This is a very low turn. So I, I can't in, believe it. So I'm going to make a call here. On a scale of uh, the most relevant thing being the Western Bulldogs 2016 grand final <laughs> and the most irrelevant thing being the cost of car parking here, this might be the most irrelevant conference on the accounting scene. This, this, if Jace I, from RBK if, Advisory. What do you reckon, uh, mate? Uh, where are we? What's going on here? It's it's a very empty building at the moment. You just look for excuses to not go to work. It's quite convenient for you. This is the first time I've been here today and I was just hoping to see some people that I knew and I'm stuck with you guys instead. No, <laughs> We're always a consolation prize. <laughs> this I think is I won't say I won't say beginning of the end I reckon there's going to be some marketing departments we haven't spoken to a lot of the we'll, we'll speak to the a lot of the add-ons and get uh, a little bit of a post game see I've what leads to enough I'm comfortable we'll with see what calls. leads flow out but geez I tell you at 15 plus grand a pop per stand the, the ROI David you're negative negative ROI here it's mate it's, it's and you add to that content which Frankly, half of the sessions were were just someone has to die, I think, or digit disruption, disruption and loathing, and how you got to change your business model. Anyway, if David, as we always and so often say, uh, if you're not paying, you are the product being sold, but not entirely sure yet. Don't know. This it really can't continue in its current form. I don't think. David and Paul just work well together. The pace is fast, and the tension between them. Keeps you captivated. Say what you want, but we, we won't go much into it. Listen to the end of the I think you just shut me up. I, I don't think you've ever shut me up. But I you gotta, did I just i got to get going. Right, All right, go. done. Have Thank a great you. week, everybody. Cheers. Thanks again for listening to an episode of From the Trenches. David and I love to hear from listeners, so you can reach out if you've got feedback or story ideas, get in touch. Podcast number two. Drunk accountant, drunk account, drunk, drunk, drunk accountant, drunk accountant, drunk account, drunk, drunk, drunk account, drunk account, drunk account, drunk accountant. The two drunk accountants are Tim Gass and Dan Osborne at the central coast of New South Wales. My name is Dan. And I'm Tim. And we are the two drunk accountants. With a great sense of humour and a lot of insights. They're both 29 at the moment and that gives them a different perspective, a younger perspective and useful exuberance. Their episodes tend to start slowly. Tim, how's your week? It's been great. Mm. Um, It's gone very fast. Um, I felt like I had something to add here, but um, 
Not really. Okay. Oh, well, I'll add something. Uh, <laughs> you can see we're well prepared here. Tim's got lots of value, guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm bringing it all. I'm bringing it all today. But then you usually get a capella performance. Cool. All right. Well, Tim, what, what is the, the Tim, Tim and Dunno? And then there's real gold coming your way. Here, Tim and Dan discussing value-based pricing in episode 70. What I did then was really high value work and mm. I essentially just gave it away for free. And here's the thing, if, especially if you're a build uh, in anything, mm. once someone has used a service or consumed a good mm-hmm. or something is created and built mm-hmm. already, mm-hmm. it's far less valuable in retrospect. Yeah, The value point peaks just before just as they need it yeah just as they're demanding it and requiring that service that is when the value is at its highest Mm -hmm. and if you're not putting a value on it at that point well then you're gonna lose out yeah you can't you can't look back and say no 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 you really Mm -hmm. wanted that now i've kind of now i've eaten the sandwich yeah exactly not sure sure it was really worth that to me exactly Um, Uh, i want to pay you half what you think it's worth and here they are talking to Ian Wynn about franchising in episode 73. Should you get into a franchise with a partner or a wife? Or, or a friend, or, family, I suppose, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a good question. I mean... Should I have, been, should I have gone into business with Dan? Is, is my real question. Yeah, I, think, <laughs> I told you it was a mistake at the time, Tim. <laughs> I'm looking at you two going, someone's going to luck out in this one. <laughs> someone's going to luck I think, yeah, we were talking about exits. Um, any, We've all... I've always had a saying that a partnership is going to end at some point yeah. and, and it's going to end after one year or five years or ten years. But at some point, you two will decide you need to, to go your own separate ways. Mm. Mm. Um, you are very young boys, 29 and... 29. Uh, 29 and 29. Uh, yeah. uh, you look a bit older, Dan. <laughs> it's the, it's the, uh, <laughs> the long beard I've got going at the I'm moment. I'm surprised. I've got a lot uh, more greys than Dan, yeah. so thank you. Yeah. But, um, I mean, tired. you guys at one point will, will <laughs> need to go your own way and, yeah. and you need to. You guys need to have thought through, okay, how are we going to split the business up or well, whatever you true. need to do. Mm. This is true. And it's the same with, with any partnership because it will occur. Mm. You know, people have children, different phases in their lives. People mm. want to move. People get sick. Yeah, people get divorced. Yeah. So I think partnerships are very, very challenging. And if you go in with a mindset of, we know how to exit this partnership, then that that's yeah. fine. But I, I'm back to the original question. I don't think partnerships are a great, great option, mm. except for you two. Of yeah. Course. Well, <laughs> uh, on us, I mean, the, the good thing uh, that Tim and I have going for us is that we've got we an have iron, a podcast. We have an ironclad <laughs> agreement that I get ninety percent of everything. <laughs> oh, if yeah. any of those things eventuate, so. I'll be fine. Right on. Yeah. Right on. <laughs> I don't remember signing that. <laughs> oh, you signed it. At least your computer signed it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, this is why I'm only going to be here 10% of the time. Forward, so. <laughs> yeah, no, but uh, Tim and I, I say this to clients all the time. We said it to ourselves. Um, Working in business together, having that partnership is like a marriage. And, and yeah. sometimes things go well and sometimes mm. things sometimes don't go well. it's more yeah. intense than a marriage. And, and as long as you plan for those things, you have open discussions, um, you have realistic expectations of who does what and what happens in that business, um, then it can, be go, it can be fine. But eventually, as you said, it will end. It can be fine. Um, I will kill Tim eventually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so uh, fa- family, I think families are sort of similar similar thing and yeah. possibly slightly more difficult because, mm. okay, yeah, if you two did split up, you're not family. At the end yeah. of the day, you don't have to see each other every Christmas day. Uh, yeah, true, exactly. F- we're very, we have a very similar friends group. So. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we'll see who the friends keep, whether it be me or you. Yeah. Team Dan. Secretly I've been working on them already. <laughs> I give them gifts every week. Yeah, yeah no, I think you're right. With It is a bit harder with family that... Um, yeah, if that business breaks up, you've still got to mm. you still got to associate with each other mm. in some way. True. Yeah. And then on to a wife or husband, I think they're the best um, yeah. best you can get. So cool. I mean, if you've made that decision to work together, mm. then I've in most of the best franchise franchisees I've seen have been a husband and wife partnership. Really yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, and one of them's generally the operator, and the other one's more of the systems type of person. Yeah, and, nice. and, and so one's front of the house, one's back of the house cool. at the end of the day. And and the two of them, they've obviously made that decision that we're going to operate this business, yep. push it hard and, and, and they have their own areas of expertise and mm. they stay in those areas and, and and they do really well. And I've seen, you know, some great uh, great husband and wife partnerships and I think that's generally yep. the best. Mm. I would say franchise when you're operating a, and this is mainly from food, high intense business. And at the end, there's some tight-ass tip, an idea about how to save a few bucks. Sometimes funny, sometimes useful, <laughs> sometimes something else. All right. Thank you for listening, everybody, and we will calculate it. Bye. From the trenches and two drunk accountants are funny and not very serious at times, but we now come to the serious podcast about tax and accounting. Podcast number three. Accountants Daily Insider. A behind-the-scenes look at the biggest news in the Australian accounting profession. The Accountants Daily podcast is published by Momentum Media, who also run, as you guessed, the Accountants Daily website. The host sometimes varies, but is usually the website's editor, which is now Sarah Kendall, after longtime host Katerina Torin passed the baton. This is Accountants Daily Insider. I'm your host, Sarah Kendall. Accountants Daily Insider is interesting, articulate, and often looks at the big picture. Here's an extract of Sarah's interview with Christopher McCollum of Receipt Bank, published on 25th of October, about the push towards paperless accounting. So one thing that you were saying in the webcast is around how single-touch payroll has sort of pushed any remaining accountants who may have been sort of resistant to going digital sort of into the future, really. When you're working with accounting firms trying to get them to go more paperless, to what extent have some of them resisted that technological change and how can you sort of, you know, help them on that road? I think the first thing I'd say is it's not so much the accounting practices that are the ones that are resistant to change. A lot of the time it's the clients. And so a lot of the time accounting practices are too scared to challenge their clients and they like to make sure that they're happy all the time and so they just do what they've always been doing because it seems to work for them, it makes sense and they like to keep people happy. And here's Sarah talking to Sarah Lawrence of Hot Toast on the 15th of November about CFO services. For accountants who may not have that sort of corporate background, would there be any value in sort of recruiting someone into their business who is from that background if they want to start offering this sort of service line? Yes, I would say the short answer is yes. It's not that as a tax accountant or a partner of a firm, you can't look at kind of building that out yourself. But I think we've also got to be aware that we're also trying to run businesses as well. So we've got capacity issues and we've got you know, we just don't have enough time to do absolutely everything. So yes, there is definitely an opportunity. I know there's a lot of hungry 
CFOs out in the commercial world that would like to make the jump potentially into public practice, potentially looking to partner up or align yourself with people like that, that you can then kind of bring into the fold and build up into the firm um, and build the department out that way is definitely a great option. And one that, you know, means that you then don't have to kind of take ownership or full ownership of that, but then you broaden the firm services out that way. And what do you think it takes to really nail a good service offering in this sort of CFO space? How long do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Look, I think first and foremost, you have to have the technical background and you have to have the experience. At the end of the day, if you don't have that as a really good foundation, then it's probably all just marketing. I hope you will like this podcast, Accountants Daily Insider Podcast. I think it gives great food for thought, makes you step back and reflect on things. We tend to get bogged down with the issues at hand in our practice and this podcast helps to step back and look at the bigger picture, reflect on what we do or don't do or should or shouldn't do. And that's all for today's show. Thanks for joining us. Podcast number four. Welcome to Tax Bat, the podcast of Tax and Super Australia. Each fortnight, we present news and insights to tax and SMSF practitioners. If you've got any questions, comments, or even suggestions, get in touch at podcast at taxandsuperaustralia.com.au. Tax Rep is published each fortnight by Tax and Super Australia, also called TSA. TSA, as in Texan Super Australia. And for quite a few years now, Steve Burnham has been the host of Tax Rap. Hello, listeners, welcome to the Tax Rap podcast. I'm your host, Steve Burnham. Now, today I've got a, a special guest. Being a journalist by trade, Steve brings a different perspective to the table, which is good. And he taps into the great tax expertise that TSA has at its fingertips. Here's Steve Burnham in episode 201 talking to Josh Goldsmith, a tax lawyer who hosts many of TSA's tax discussion groups. But in the people discussions with people, with the tax discussion groups, etc., what else came out of the conversations that you had? Yeah, so something that's been coming up uh, quite a lot at the moment is... And we're seeing this in, in cases near on every month of the last couple of months. Really? We're seeing yeah. treatment of compensation payments really? um, okay. being, a, being a relevant thing. Now, if my memory serves me correctly, I think th- this is outlined in Tax Ruling 9535. 9535, okay. Yeah, and, and 9535 goes for about 100 pages and it's quite comprehensive. But if we were to sort of strip it all back, and this is the essence of every case, yep. you work out first and foremost whether that the sum is dissectable or undissectable. So this is an amount received oh, yes. in compensation. Okay. So, yeah. so comp- compensation for accidents, for losing your job, anything? Anything, anything, anything yeah. Um, right. So they're basically lump sum payments. Right. So if they're dissectable, the approach generally taken um, by the ATO, and this is whether it's right or, or not right by law, but it is the approach taken by the ATO and it's mm-hmm. been the approach which has been informed by the jurisprudence. Right is that uh, you, you use the underlying asset approach. So the compensation, you ask yourself to what does this relate? And if this relates to it in, to income, yep. then this is basically treated on revenue account. Oh, and if okay. this relates to a, a capital receipt or a capital payment, then right. this, it basically relates to capital. Okay. But I guess the more interesting part of compensation payments, which comes up time and time again, is what do you do in the instance of where the lump sum is undissectable? Okay. So when you've got a compensation payment and it's a lump sum you don't know what it relates to but it relates to a bunch of different things 
Um, the, the date of release, the terms in which the agreement was entered into, doesn't specify what amounts relate to what components. Right. So what do you do? Well, right. Now, the treatment here is quite favourable for taxpayers, which is, which is really nice, and this is treated on capital account. Okay, yep. The benefit of this, Steve, of course, is that when it's on capital account, you can get the CGT the discount. The discount, right, yeah. Which is really significant, and, and so it is, a, it, it is potentially discountable. And here is Steve Burnham in episode 203 talking to TSA's tax counsel, John Jeffries, about TPB activities and more. Now, also, John, um, just briefly, you were mentioning there was a case that uh, has just happened and it was pivotal yeah. somehow. You, could you explain that? Uh, well, I just wonder, uh, I actually only just read this just before uh, this podcast. It's a, a case of Stephen Mads, M-A-D-Z, uh, where the Tax Practitioners Board uh, terminated the registration of this agent who had been an agent for 40 years. Now, they did it because he had not lodged his tax returns on time or BASs on time. <laughs> These actions were still taken. So mm, it's just mm. um, a salient warning, I think, to uh, all of our members and listeners to make sure you get your affairs in order. Yep. And indeed, if you can, get your own affairs in order first. Oh, your own tax affairs. Mm. Okay. Yeah, because that's been an issue, hasn't yeah. it? <clears throat> I was going to say, that, but what can you do? What, how can you mitigate the risk uh, of that? Just yes. Well, it, get things it's, done. Uh... Tax Rep is the first tax podcast I got hooked on and I have listened to almost all their episodes. And Tax Talks owes its existence to Tax Rep. They gave us the idea and inspiration for Tax Talks. Thank you, listeners, once again for listening to the Tax Rep podcast. Uh, we've enjoyed having your company. Thanks again, John. Thanks, Steve. Uh, please tune in again next time. Podcast number five. Hello, and welcome to Tax Yak. And then there's TaxYak, a podcast by TaxBenter. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. And hosted by Robin Jacobson. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with TaxBenter, and your host of today's podcast. Robin has in-depth knowledge of Australian tax, including policy, and awesome at explaining complex issues. Take this discussion in episode 34 with Ian Raspin about estates. As an example, Robin and Ian are just going through a range of reasons why acting as an executor for a client's estate is fraught with danger. I'll give you another perspective on this. Many years ago, I was running a session for the ATO and one of the officers came up to me and had a dilemma. What had happened was an accountant had put his hand up to basically be executor when a client had passed away. Now, the scenario would normally be the wife would come to him and say, look, my husband's just died. You know this company or this trust better than I do. Can you please step up? And so in the case of a trust, discretionary trust, mm. they would step up and become the trustee or director of the trustee company, as the case may be. What that meant was that the accountant now controlled that entity. Yeah. So firstly, when they were then looking to apply the small business CGT concessions, it meant that potentially the accountant's personal assets are now being included oh, with that of his clients yeah. because they're now connected. Then it went further because if he acted for trust A and trust B and trust C for three different clients, they were now connected with each other. And so you had a practical problem that if he acted for half a dozen or a dozen clients or more in his practice, they're all grouped with each other, which means none of his clients potentially would ever satisfy the $6 million threshold. That's a real concern. It was a huge problem. And the ATO is basically saying, look, we're trying to work 
around this or what can we do or is this a problem? And I'm saying, yes, I think it is. So I would always suggest that if an accountant has approached to be an executor and you're the expert in this area, not me, I'd be saying help them out, but do it as a professional, charge fees for it and don't get legally involved. TaxEx is probably the technically most demanding Australian tax podcast out there, but therefore also the one most likely to give you an answer to the tax question you have. We look forward to you joining us next time. are five Australian podcasts made for us, made by Australian accountants or journalists for Australian accountants, tax professionals or advisors. But what about our clients? When you look at your clients, they usually do any of the following. They either run a business and or invest in property and or invest in shares or units and or have an SMSF, business, property, shares and SMSF, those four things. This is what they do and we help them with that so we need to live in that world and there are podcasts that help us do that podcast number six from npr it's how i built this a show about innovators entrepreneurs idealists and the stories behind the movements they built had heard about how I built it many times and so when a friend suggested that I should listen to it I did and I wasn't impressed I couldn't see what the fuss was about and so whenever somebody suggested how I built it again you really should listen to how I built it I just shrugged my shoulders (laughs) didn't grab me I don't know why but the thing is I didn't listen to the right How I Built It. There are several podcasts with the same title and you need to listen to the one by Guy Ress, published by NPR, NPR as in National Public Radio. That one is awesome, full of insights, really interesting and inspiring for anybody with an interest in business. Guy Ress hosts the podcast. Hey, it's Guy here. So, And he is, according to the New York Times, one of the most popular podcasters in history. Here's a short segment where Guy interviews Jay Burton Carpenter, the founder of Burton Snowboards. They talk about the early days when Jake had just started his venture. Like, who are the kinds of people who are coming into your shop in Londonderry, Vermont, and saying, yeah, I'll buy one? Yeah, it wasn't people out for a walk and buying a snowboard, and we didn't sell any, maybe a few T-shirts, but... Uh, most people that found out about us that would come there and uh, people we would advertise in the skateboard magazines and a little bit in the ski magazines spent some money there. I mean, I because there were these pockets around the country in Michigan and Arizona, there were these places where people had snurfed and liked me and they'd sort of stuck with it and they got it. They understood it. That first year, uh, what kind of feedback were you getting from people who, who bought them? Did they love it? Did they were they like, this is going to change the world? Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, I was like Willie Loman, and I was a traveling salesman, and I would load up my car. It was a Volvo wagon at the time, and I remember once going out with 
38 snowboards, and I drove around New York State and visited dealers, and I went out with 38, and I came home with 40. 40 snowboards? <laughs> because one guy had given me two back that he'd bought and said, this no is a joke. You, you would visit ski shops, basically? Ski shops, yeah. That was my first. And then ultimately, you know, some surf shops. And it was, in the beginning, skateboard shops, surf shops, ski shops. Nobody wanted any part of it. I mean, did you have, were you discouraged at all after that first year? Did you think, maybe this isn't not going to work, and maybe I should just cut bait? Yeah, I had some. I had a few days that it was tough getting out of bed, just motivating myself. Right? I mean, you were getting rejected all the time. All day long. And you were all by yourself? Yeah. And I am, like, I'm an emotional guy, you know, having lost people, and I always have been. Yeah. <clears throat> so I had to let go of my two relatives and my friend very quickly. And it became back to me in year two because we made enough boards in that first winter. I don't know whether we made a thousand or fifty. We made enough for three years. So they're just sitting in they're, your shop? Yeah, they're not shop fully, and... fully assembled or boxed, but yeah, they're pretty much done. And so I had one high school kid helping me out part-time, and that was it. And, and how many boards did you guys sell that first year? First year was 300 or 350. Second year was 700. I remember one day in that second winter of selling and packing up the 700th board and thinking, wow, that's, you know, that's over doubling. So what happens between that first year and that second year when you go from 300 to 700? Why? Why did you double the number of boards? Was it just luck? What Exposure. Was it was just getting out there, word of mouth. I mean, marketing, our, you know, advertising, placing ads and these ski, surfer, skateboard mags. That was Guy Ress talking to Jake Burton Carpenter, the founder of Burton Snowboards. Guy's podcasts on NPR have a combined monthly audience of 19.2 million downloads. That number is mind-boggling. 19.2 million per month. That is almost like the entire population of Australia. Listen to Guy every month. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. Podcast number seven. Well, I said, welcome to a small business marketing show. Where successful small business owners share their souls. To take your marketing straight to the lead. Now, here's your host, Mr. Tim Bowie. Small business big marketing is similar to how I built it in that it also is about business founders and owners, but it is also very different. It has a stronger focus on marketing and it is made by a true Aussie blog, Tim Reed. And welcome back to your weekly dose of marketing stardom. I'm your host, Timbo Reed. You, infinitely more importantly, you're a motivated business owner and you're ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. Tim has a huge fan base, not just in Australia, but also overseas, notably the US. So let's get stuck right in. He's very funny. Uh, thank you for having me, Timbo. I've been listening to your show for years, so I'm very excited to be on it. You're the one. <laughs> it was me. Yes, it was. <laughs> I knew there was one out there listening. And has a huge arsenal of dead jokes. So many jokes there, so little time. Based in Melbourne... 
Tim interviews successful small business owners about their business and marketing every week. As per usual, team, there's marketing G-O-L-D dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. Tim chooses interesting guests and produces really helpful content. Here are some clips from Tim in episode 473 talking to Jeff Anderson about the do's and don't do's of video marketing. I want to get your take on what you think the top five videos are. And then just a little, a quick discussion around strategic videos where you do spend some dough versus tactical videos, which you do on the hop. So first of all, Jeff, top five videos every small business should have. Number one for me is a case study video. And I think these are great because it's actually your customers talking about your product or services from their point of view. So they're not obviously selling your product or service, but what it does, it really captures the imagination of the viewers because they can relate very much to that situation. And they can say, yeah, I've got that problem. I need that service. I want that solution. I want that outcome. And so I take customers on a four-step process with the case studies. I say, uh, what was the problem that you were having? What was the product or service that was provided? How has that helped transform your business or your life, depending on what it is? And then how are you now feeling as a result? So that's that's the case study. That's number one. I think it's a no-brainer. And it's number two. Number two, five mistakes. Um, so talk about the sort of things that people um, make a mistake when they when they're using your product or service or in your industry. And the beauty of that is it just shows sort of the layers of complexity of what you provide that people don't know they don't know. So they get to see it. It also builds credibility and trust with you because you're giving away this free, helpful information. And another beauty of this is it actually selects out the people that are not going to be suitable for you. So you might get some people think, oh, I can do it myself. Great, I'm off and running. They're the ones you don't want to necessarily be working with anyway. So that's a great way to build um, trust and, and rapport. Number three? Uh, a pitch video. So that's that's about addressing what um, the problem is that you solve for your customer. So just remember, it's not about you. People get really tempted to talk about their own, mm. you know, this is what we do, blah, blah, blah. And you really need to keep asking yourself, why does this matter to the customer? So start out with talking about what the problem is and then how your product or service solves that problem and, and how you're going to be the ideal solution for them. Like that one. Number four? Every every video a small business owner should have? I believe uh, a really powerful one is what I call a rapport building video. So this is where you tell people why you do what you do and why you love doing it, why, why it gets you out of bed. I had a customer who um, told me he got a phone call from a, from a new client saying, yep, I'm ready to work with you. I want you to build these patios out in our backyard. And he said, oh, okay, how did you hear about it? I said, well, look, I've, I've watched your video and I can trust you. Um, so it builds that, you know, that rapport, that trust, because people understand who you are, what drives you, what motivates you, and they can they can like you without even meeting you. So it's a great way to um, to get people on board. Yeah, I love that. Basically, you know, why do you do what you do? And number five, Jeff. Uh, well, a product video. So something that explains the features of your product or service. So and the value that it brings. So it's a little bit different from a pitch video, which is more about the overarching solution service you provide. This is then narrowing down to some of the different products or solutions that you have, and just unpacking those and letting people know the value and the benefits of, of getting those. So I guess those five ones that you've highlighted, Jeff, are what I would call strategic videos, ones that you do once, they're evergreen, you put them on your website and you're going to show us, actually going to give us a lot of places where you can put them and get exposure for them. But there's also the opportunity, isn't there, to do tactical videos where you might, um, let's say you're a real estate agent and you go and provide a valuation of someone's home, the idea of actually getting out in the, the driveway at the end of that meeting and doing a quick video saying thank you, tactical video, something you could do on your phone. You see a role for those as well? 
Oh, look, absolutely, absolutely. There's so many ways. I mean, I... And then there are the attention grabbers. Here's what grabbed my attention from that chat. Where Tim lists the three or four main learnings. Attention grabber number one. He took away. Attention grabber number two. From that interview. Attention grabber number three. Just very helpful. That's what grabbed my attention. And then at the end, there's a price draw. Come on down. It's Timbo's Monster Prize Draw. Where Tim reads a listener comment about how they took action and implemented things. Yep, it's time to reward another motivated listener for taking some serious marketing action as a result of listening to this show. Because we all know that it is much easier to talk about it. And today's winner is... Than to actually do it, to actually do something. So credit to Tim for giving the doers a shout out. Do whatever it takes to, you know, get more business owners listening. That's what we've got to do. We've got to get the word out there. Until next week, I'm Timbo Reed. Thanks for tuning in. May your marketing be the absolute best marketing. Bye for now. Podcast number eight. Welcome to the Property Couch, where each week you get to listen to two of Australia's leading experts. The Property Couch is the podcast when it comes to Australian real estate, hosted by Bryce Holdaway and Ben Kingsley. And if Bryce's voice sounds familiar to you, then you have probably seen him on ABC or Foxtel. Bryce Holdaway, co-host of Location, Location, Location Australia on Foxtel's Lifestyle Channel, co-host of Escape from the City on the ABC and partner of Empower Wealth Advisory. Ben Kingsley, Chair of Property Investors Council of Australia and the founder of Empower Wealth Advisory, named the 2018 and 2019 Property Advisory Firm of the Year. Stay tuned as they bring you the Insider's Guide to Property, Finance and Money Management. The Property Couch gives a helpful insight into Australian real estate. We want them to understand and implement the four pillars of investing in property mm -hmm. and we want them to follow through on the five steps that it takes to actually buy an investment property. That is our hope, yeah. that every single person, money smarts, Correct. four pillars and then actually follow a step-by-step -step the With a huge following, they receive hundreds of letters and messages each week from grateful listeners. Fina and Jason wrote in. Some of which they share in the show. Alex wrote in to you, Ben. To give you a feel of what the property couch sounds like and is about, here are Bryce and Ben in episode 258 discussing some of the mental triggers used by property brokers and many others. So we're actually going to lift and the lid. it's a universal it's a, marketing process. It works, it works universally for real estate, widgets, chairs, yep. holidays, whatever, you, it works, right? Anything, cars, and, the whole lot. And the reason it works is because it unpacks the mental triggers that human beings have. Mental trigger number one is reciprocity. Yep which is essentially giving some really great stuff away. Second mental trigger is something that is around an event, Ben. Yep. So people love events and feeling like they're part of something larger than themselves. Yep. 
Well, it leads on to the third trigger. So the first one was reciprocity, second one was event-based, third one is anticipation. Mm. And so there's a bit of Tony Robbins building the anticipation. Definitely. Um, so what happens with the anticipation around um, property is future pacing. They let you know what, well, it's kind of yep. how bad things are now and this is what you could have if you go forward and this is what you won't have if you don't make a decision. So they build some anticipation around how good this can be. What's the next one, Ben? Next one is community, Bryce. Hey, the next one is interaction, conversation. So people would rather talk than listen, and they'll pay attention to a conversation more than they'll pay attention to a lecture. So mm. in our space, that's where it's the meeting after the meeting. You know, Okay, you've just gone to an event base. There's a bit of reciprocity. We're going yep. to send you on a holiday. This, uh, it's too good to be true. Well, actually, they don't say that bit, but we know it's true. <laughs> and then they go, okay, why don't you chat with one of our folks one-on-one to engage at that level where you've really future-paced and they know that what's uh, what's possible. Now it's getting down to brass tacks about what's uh, specific to, to me and to you. Yeah, so for me, um, this one is more around storytelling. Mm. Um, there's, you know, people can relate to stories um, and it's a universal way in which we learn. So conversation, storytelling, and if I can identify with that story um, from, you know, Pain Island to Pleasure Island and those types of things, then I'm more susceptible to open my mind to the opportunity. So you'll find that some of the best um, ways in which people sell to you is they tell you a story. And they tell you a story in a way in which you can relate to that. And that's that conversation piece as opposed to, you know, just focusing on the features and the benefits. If you just focus on features and benefits, then you may not have that connection. Remember, you know, Dr. Peter Fuda said, people will tolerate other people's opinions, but they'll only act on their own conclusions. And how you bring that around is they see themselves in that story, which you were talking about before. Now, Ben, uh, just to add to what you just said with the story, the story has a formula, and the formula goes like this. Woe to win. Yes. (laughs) I was down on my yep. last 20 cents. I was scraping the, the backside out of my jeans, all those sorts of things. And then oh, I look at me now, I'm driving Ferrari and I travel yep. first class and all yep. those sorts of things. That it's is huge in the investment seminar space. The last one. Yes. Scarcity, Ben. Scarcity is a big seller. It when works. there is less of something, people yep. will inherently want it more. Correct. And then here's a summary later in the episode. And the thing is, these mental triggers are most powerful when they're in clusters. Yep. So if scarcity on its own has none of the other triggers, yep. and, and like that you know, before the auction goes down or you've got to move quickly because it's an established property and it's going to go, within, in the absence of the other ones, well, then there's not necessarily a, uh, a bigger game being played there other than to yep. try and serve you. So. so this is just a collection of clips cut together. But please go back and listen to the full episode. Folks, the mental triggers when it comes to marketing. Number one, reciprocity. Two, have an event paced. Number three, include anticipation. Number four is have social proof. Number five is have actual proof. Number six, what am I up to? Six, uh, community. Number seven, have some form of interaction, conversation, as Ben said, storytelling. And number eight, as Ben double checks my accounting, uh, is scarcity. And in each episode, you hear this mantra. Knowledge is empowering, but only if you act on it. Which I think is really, really good. Well, the thing is, knowledge is empowering, but only if you act on it, Ben, (laughs) isn't it? Because 
some things we need to hear a hundred times. Knowledge is empowering, but only if you act on it. Until we finally get it. And don't forget, go to thepropertycouch.com.au forward slash TPC20 and get your binge guide today. Podcast number nine. This is Masters in Business. This podcast is for you if you or your clients invest in shares or units or bonds, options, foreign currencies, any derivatives, anything you can't touch. The podcast is hosted by Barry Rittles. With Barry Rittles. Who is a really nice guy, by the way. When asked whether we could use some of his audio, he immediately wrote back and said, yes, go for it. That is what it is there for. On Bloomberg Radio. Barry interviews big names in fund portfolio and investment management, economic and social policies, banking, entertainment, you name it. And he meets with professors, authors, Nobel Prize winners, industry leaders, decision makers. They discuss a wide range of topics from global trends over industry-specific issues to personal stories. This week on the podcast, I have an extra, extra special guest. He is the winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics from 2001. He is the former dean of the Stanford Graduate School of Business. He is currently a professor at NYU Stern. He is a senior advisor at General Atlantic, a very large private equity firm, which manages about $35 billion. Masters in Business is not a hands-on podcast like The Property Couch. You won't get four pillars and five steps. And it is not about small business like the small business big marketing podcast either. Instead, it is about economies, global organizations, global markets, large enterprises, it is more a looking around, understanding a certain aspect of a problem, usually in a global problem, and not a hands-on guide on how to invest wealth. But to invest well, we need this global perspective. We need to understand what is happening behind the scenes. So with no further ado, my interview. And so to give you a taste for what this podcast sounds like, Here's Barry interviewing Benjamin Appleboom about the relationship between the U.S. government and the U.S. Federal Reserve. The takeaway to me was, hey, presidents have been pressuring and arguing with Fed chairs for a long time, only they kind of did it quietly and behind closed doors. What, what's your read of the battle between Trump and Powell, the president and the Fed chair, and how different is this than previous relationships? So that story is about President Lyndon Johnson summoning uh, William McChesney Martin, the chairman of the Fed in the late 1960s, to his Texas ranch and literally shoving him against a wall and yelling at him for daring to raise interest rates. So I love clearly, I love uh, our boys are dying in Vietnam yeah, because of you. Yeah. Well, not really, but it certainly is. The president says that to you. It, it should get your attention. And it did. And it did. So it, clearly, you know, if you go back historically, uh, the Fed was essentially an arm of the Treasury Department during World War II. And, uh, you know, presidents in that era clearly thought of the Fed as taking instructions from them, and they were not afraid to issue those instructions. And through Johnson and through Nixon and even into the Reagan era, we have examples of presidents as you say, behind the scenes, but quite explicitly, directly and confrontationally putting pressure on the Fed. I do think that there was a change uh, beginning in the 80s, but really taking hold in the 1990s, uh, where presidents 
concluded that that things worked out better if you left the Fed alone. Mm -hmm. Not not that they changed their mind about wanting the Fed to deliver the best outcomes, but that they were convinced that if you gave it a little bit of of space, mm -hmm. a little bit of independence, uh, that would be better for the economy, both in the medium term and in the long term. And so there was uh, less of that kind of communication. And I do think that we're now seeing a reversion to an earlier pattern in which the Trump administration is, you know, emulating much earlier presidential administrations in, in sort of explicitly telling the Fed what it wants and pressuring the Fed to do it. And that's something we have not seen in a long time. So so I find this whole thing ironic for a couple of reasons. First, um, when he was a citizen, citizen Trump was complaining that Yellen was keeping rates too low. She, he, I, I believe the, the interview was she should be ashamed of herself. And at the end, there's always a 10-question speed round where Barry asks his guests a range of personal questions. Let me run through our speed round. Yes. I'm going to ask you it. 10 questions. Oh, boy. Bang through these as fast as you can. Okay. First car you ever own, Year Making Mouth, Early Mentors. What are some of your favorite books? <laughs> So normally at this point, I would ask you what you do for fun. Some answers are funny. Uh, what's the most important thing people don't know about Brian Grazer? That I cry a lot. Really? Yeah. And some are very personal. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. I failed so many times. Um, I learned to keep taking risk and keep failing. Keep coming back at it. Keep coming back. Don't well. What I really learned is don't let fail. It used to really traumatize me, uh -huh. depress me. I couldn't go to work. I'd, yeah, I'd develop physical problems. Right. But that doesn't happen any longer. Huh. I, I still don't like to fail, but I'd rather be fearless. The Masters in Business podcast looks at the people and ideas that shape markets, investing, and business. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. And so now we should talk about SMSFs. We have covered business, property, and financial investment. So now we should come to a podcast about SMSFs. First of all, all accounting podcasts we featured early on do cover SMSFs. And we, as in text talks, we do as well. But when it comes to pure SMSF podcasts, the landscape has thinned out and is very barren now. Four SMSF podcasts have gone into hibernation since 2018. There is still one left standing, the SMSF News and Strategies podcast with Chris Reed and Sarah Power. But this is aimed as SMSF trustees and so is sticking to the basics. And so I think it might be too basic for you. And DBA lawyers started a podcast but charges a fee per episode. So let's skip this one. There is one more podcast we really wanted to tell you about. And podcast number 10. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, this is American Life. Here are the masters of storytelling. This is American Life. Based in Chicago, their episodes are masterpieces of creativity, investigative journalism, and just pure audio craftsmanship. This American Life would bring you yet another program. Ira Glass is co-founder and celebrity host. I'm Ira Glass. Coming up this hour, Act One. Each episode is broken down in several acts. Act One. And so on. They are like chapters in a book. Act Two. 2.2 million listeners per week in the US. Another 3.6 million downloads per episode from outside the US. And these are old numbers. The current numbers are probably a lot higher. Having said all this, 
Some episodes go deep into American politics and none of the episodes cover accounting or tax or business at all. So why on earth is this a top 10 for Australian accountants? Because sometimes you find food for thought where you least expect it. Let me give you two examples. The first one is about a marketing campaign in Colombia. Described in Act One of Episode 575 of This American Life. The nation of Colombia has been at war for more than 50 years. Colombia has struggled with guerrilla movement since the 1960s and most notably is FARC. The main rebel group fighting the government is called the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. The Spanish acronym for that is FARC, spelled F-A-R-C. The FARC are a leftist guerrilla contingent. 2.7 million people displaced, well over 200,000 lives lost. You get the idea. This particular propaganda campaign began about 10 years ago. And for the Colombian government, one important goal in this fight is to get guerrilla fighters to demobilize, to leave FARC, to go home. The assignment convinces many FARC guerrilla fighters as possible to demobilize, to quit the FARC. In short, please help us end this war. So they engaged a marketing agency, and this agency tried to do what we are all trying to do. Reach out, get a message across, be heard, change minds. How to change a behavior, how to change a perception. That's, that's the business we're in. We're in the business of changing minds. We all know this is really difficult. Getting guerrillas to demobilize isn't exactly selling beer to soccer fans. They're either true believers in the cause or, more frequently, captives themselves. If you try to escape the FARC and they catch you, they'll kill you. But they got their message through, and here's how they did it. Their first step was to gather some intel themselves. And so they interviewed a bunch of guerrillas who had just demobilized to find out what makes someone quit the FARC. So they went into the field and collected stories. Yeah, these are not, these are not beautiful stories. I could go on and, and your reaction would be, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. No, they really are. Not nice stories. And after gathering all of those stories, they picked three of them and made each one into a 30-second TV ad. Apparently, a lot of guerrilla camps are outfitted with satellite dishes so they can watch the football matches. But they made one big mistake. We did not actually use the guerrillas' voices. We used actors. And they immediately saw through that. And they said, this is not real. This is not how we speak. So they tried again. We went back to the archives of all the stories we had recorded And we asked permission of the guerrillas who had told us these stories to use their voices and put them on the air, slightly modified. And then <clears throat> that started being much more effective. So this was a step forward. The ads were mainly targeting the foot soldiers, the foundation of the FARC. And Jose says it's safe to estimate 2,000 of those lower-ranking guerrillas have demobilized since his company started with the radio spots. But it wasn't enough, he says, in part because the FARC leaders were telling their soldiers that the government was forcing the ex-guerrillas to say those things in the ads. So they kept looking, they kept looking for a better solution, and they kept talking to demobilized guerrillas. And then, in 2010, Jose's team learned something that would totally radicalize the way they did this work. One of his young colleagues noticed it first. Looking at the data, demobilization numbers always went up around Christmas. They peaked, actually. Guerrillas wanted to be home for Christmas. In war terminology, December was a window of vulnerability for the FARC. And so they set out gigantic trees that we put in nine strategic pathways in the jungle, covered with Christmas lights. 
These trees were lit up at night and they had a sign beside them. A sign that only lit up when the gorillas happened to walk by and trigger a motion sensor. It said, If Christmas can come to the jungle, you can come home. Demobilize. In Christmas, everything is possible. By gigantic trees, Jose means maybe 75 feet high, all wrapped in whitish-blue lights from top to bottom. It was really impressive. They called it Operation Christmas. Compare that image. With the Army of Colombia descending in Black Hawk helicopters. But as spectacular as the trees were, they were just meant to be kind of a tease. Jose says it was just a little taste of Christmas. But that's it. There's no friends, there's no party, there's no aguardiente. But that was enough. And that was incredibly powerful. That that effort alone demobilized 331 guerrillas. Really? Which, which at the time um, was a, roughly 5% of the whole guerrilla army. And that wasn't even necessarily the result of seeing the trees, Jose says. Sometimes the guerrillas just heard about them and decided to demobilize. And after winning that first Christmas, they were able to perfect and hone the formula even more sharply. Because now, they had these newly demobilized guerrillas to talk to. Eventually, when, when we talked to the guerrillas that had left, at the time they said, the trees are all good. They were amazing. We love them. Thank you very much. Uh, and, uh, and they were very effective. And, uh, but the thing is that we are not walking as much as you think. We move in the, in the rivers. The rivers are the highways of the jungle in Colombia. And Jose's company could have done what you do on a highway, put up billboards. But why do that when you can do something far more insane? The 2011 Christmas demobilization campaign was called Operation Rivers of Light. Jose and company went to towns and villages and gathered little toys and trinkets, notes. They mostly had people write notes to the guerrilla fighters. And they put all of those things into plastic glowing purple balls, a little bit bigger than a softball. They floated almost 7,000 of those balls onto the rivers of Colombia, all of which lit up at night like a terrestrial galaxy. The tops of the balls were transparent so the FARC soldiers would see what was inside of them when they pulled them out of the water. The Christmas after that, they decided they weren't just going to bring lights to the jungle. They were going to use lights to try to lead gorillas out of the jungle. They shone huge spotlights up into the sky, the way they did in Manhattan after 9-11 to symbolize the missing towers. Except in this case, the message was, Gorilla, this Christmas, follow the light that will guide you to your family and your freedom. They called it Operation Bethlehem. And when you look at the photos that Jose shows during his TED talk, it does look beautiful. It does look breathtakingly beautiful. And it worked. It resulted in a demobilization every six hours. But along with beauty, Jose says one of the other key ingredients is surprise. It has to be something they've never done before. So after three Christmases in a row, he and his fellow guerrilla marketers all looked at each other and said, Enough of the lights. We're not going to keep throwing lights at the jungle. Let's, <laughs> let's think of something different. And it, it's, it came across because the circumstances changed. That is, in 2012, the two sides began peace talks in Cuba. There had been peace negotiations between the revolutionaries and the government before, but this time they seemed more promising. So to Jose's thinking, the concerns of the FARC were different now. 
It wasn't so much, is this a winnable war anymore, or is this life worth living? It was more, this war's probably going to end anyway. We're all going to end up disbanding. And will they take me in again back home? Will my family still accept me? And that's when they dropped probably their biggest emotional bomb to date, a campaign they called simply Mother's Voices. They found 37 mothers of guerrilla fighters who were willing to give them pictures of those fighters as children. And, and it was important that they gave us pictures of the kids when they were small because in order to protect them, we needed to make sure that only the guerrilla would, only the person in the picture would be able to recognize himself. And the message was, before you were a guerrilla, you were my child. So That's what it said on the poster. That's what it said on the poster. Before mm-hmm. you were a guerrilla, you were my child. Come back this Christmas. I'm waiting for you. They printed up thousands of these posters and hung them in towns that the guerrillas moved through and nailed them to trees as well. The mother's campaign was really moving. Simple, no lights attached. Proving you don't have to do something huge and carnivalistic to win someone over, to change their behavior. I mean, the goal of propaganda is usually to appeal to emotions, but this was on another level. It was so personal. In a couple of cases, so specific to the person receiving the message. And it worked. It worked so well that... As part of the peace negotiations, the FARC has asked the government not to launch any big demobilizing campaigns this Christmas. For the first time in years, Jose and his team have Christmas off. Now, the second example is about building cars. Again, no clear connection to what you do for a living. But think about it. You're trying to streamline workflows, manage teams, getting things done in the most efficient way. And that is exactly what the car industry is trying as well. In 1984, General Motors and Toyota entered into a joint venture agreement and together started operating a manufacturing plant called Numi. Everything was so new to us. You know, this was just a totally new experience. And it is through Numi that the American car industry wanted to learn from the Japanese. Really, we wanted to give them a chance to see and experience a different way of doing things. We wanted them to see the culture there, the way people work together to solve problems. To get started, they sent American workers from General Motors in the U.S. to a Toyota manufacturing plant in Japan. Taking a bus, a large bus, with my small group of Japanese colleagues uh, to pick up the first group of uh, trainees arriving. To have a look see how they do it. And as they got off the plane, we had signs welcoming them. News media was everywhere. And so here is how this first visit went. Uh, Television cameras were there, because this was big news in Japan at at, at the time. And it's interesting what made the news. The narrator in this Japanese public television program points out that the American worker is nine years older than his Toyota trainer. He also notes for his Japanese viewers that the Americans are so much larger than the Japanese, they waste a second or two more each time they get in and out of the vehicles they're building, which makes them 10 to 15 percent less productive than their Asian counterparts. And so the Americans joined the Japanese in the Toyota factory. And they spent uh, about two weeks and they worked in a Toyota plant. Hooked up, uh, you know, at the hip, with a counterpart in the Corolla plant, someone who did the exact same job you would be doing back in in Fremont. 
and they start to do the job, and they were pretty proud because they were building cars back in the United States, and they wanted to show they can do it within the time allotted, and they would usually get behind, and they would struggle, and they would try to catch up, and at some point, somebody would come over and say, do you want me to help? And, and that was a revolution, because nobody in the GM plant would ever ask to help. They would come and yell at you because you got behind. So that was the first big surprise. The key to the Toyota production system was a principle so basic, it sounds like an empty management slogan. Teamwork. Back home in Fremont, GM supervisors ordered around large groups of workers. At the Takeoka plant, people were divided into teams of just four or five. They switched jobs every few hours to relieve the monotony. And a team leader would step in to help whenever anything went wrong. But there was even a bigger surprise. Then the, the biggest surprise was if when they had those problems, afterwards, somebody would come in up to them and say, what are your ideas for improvement so we don't have that problem again? So they'd make suggestions for a different kind of tool that would be better for the job or a different place for bolts and parts to sit that would be easier to reach. They couldn't believe that responsiveness. I can't remember any time in my working life where anybody asked for my ideas to solve the problem. And they literally want to know. And when, they, when I tell them, they listen, and then suddenly they disappear, and somebody comes back with the tool that I just described. It's built, and they say, try this. Under the Toyota system, everyone's expected to be looking for ways to improve the production process all the time, to make the worker's job easier and more efficient, to shave extra steps and extra seconds off each worker's job, to spot defects in the cars and the causes of those defects. This is the Japanese concept of Kaizen, continuous improvement. The third surprise was something else again. What got me was the fact that they had a crossbow and they stopped the line to repair it. That's Rick Madrid, the worker who brought a thermos full of vodka and OJ to work every day at GM. What he saw in Japan was a kind of a bolt, a cross bolt, that they'd put in wrong. And they stopped the line and repaired it, which is take the bolt out, ream the hole, put the bolt back in, instead of sending it on and putting all the other junk on top of it, so you have to take it off and repair it. And whoever puts it back isn't skilled in, in putting trim back, so they're going to mess up. That impression said, gee, that makes sense. Fix it now so you don't have to go through all this stuff. That's when it, it dawned on me that we can do it. One bolt. <laughs> One bolt changed my attitude. Uh, I think that there was a combination of feelings. One feeling was, uh, wow, this is different. Again, that's industrial engineering professor Jeffrey Liker. Another feeling was of embarrassment. We've been in this industry for how many years? My whole adult life. We're Americans. We're supposed to be the, the best most important country in the world, and we can't build a car quality car. And these Japanese are doing it. And there was some a sense of uh, hurt pride. And then after two weeks, it was time to go home. Uh, we had a party, of course, a sushi party, and this was years ago before sushi was as, 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 as it is now. It was, a, it was still a rare thing, of course. And people were crying on both sides. You had, you had uh, union workers grizzled old folks that had worked on the plant floor for 30 years, and they were hugging their Japanese counterparts just absolutely in tears. The U.S. workers are in kimonos with the Toyota name on them, and they hand their neckties to the Japanese and hug. One man is crying. Minasan no 
One of the Americans says in Japanese, thanks to you all, we now feel confident for our success. John Shook. And it might sound flowery to say it's 25 years later, but they had had such a powerful emotional experience of learning a new way of working, a way that people could actually work together collaboratively as a team. We knew it wasn't going to be easy. There were a lot of hurdles to overcome, but there was no question in anyone's mind that this was going to work. But if it was going to work, it would mean a radically different relationship between workers and management, one where the managers trusted the workers to let them pull the andon cord and stop the line, one where the workers trusted their bosses enough to ask for help when there were problems. With teamwork, we can do it all. Now let's pull up your hands and together, with teamwork, we can do it all. So these are just two examples, heavily cut together, but hopefully they are enough to entice you in. Please listen to the full episodes 561 and 575, because we cut these two episodes heavily together and probably defaced and destroyed them to some extent. So please listen to the real thing and download the app. You will have well over 600 episodes at your fingertips. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. At first sight, This American Life doesn't look relevant to what you do for a living, but it might still give you the answers you need if you allow your mind to find them. Committed to keeping the pub in public radio. Find out more, won't you? At lagunitas.com. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week. For more stories of this American life. Welcome back. So give these podcasts a try. I'm hoping that you will find them inspiring, eye-opening and entertaining. This was our last episode for 2019. We published 96 episodes this year. Hopefully they gave you some new insights and ideas. Thank you for listening and putting up with poor Skype calls, my thick accent and a ton of other things. And a big thank you to Borna Mijolovic for superb editing and fixing poor audio. And to Jen Solomon for running the show backstage right from the start, 213 episodes ago. And the biggest thank you, of course, to our speakers, each of you. Without you, text talks wouldn't exist. It is kind and generous of you to share your expertise with all of us the way you do. And, of course, a gigantic thank you to Class for sponsoring the show. Class is a wonderful sponsor in so many ways. We will be back on the 3rd of February and start with technical topics ranging from the main residence exemption for Airbnb properties and foreign residents to a range of SMSF topics with, of course, a lot more to follow. Have a wonderful break, relax, enjoy your family and friends, and most of all, look after yourself. And if this is not a happy time for you, December can be a really tough month to get through. If that is you, just let it pass, let it go. And before you know it, it will be January and a brand new year. Have a happy start into 2020. See you next year. Mm -hmm.